0: Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Foran. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more. Listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, and so much more. Now sit back, relax, and join me as we get weird. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Strangeology podcast. Coming up on the show today, we have the story of ancient giants roaming North America, a historical conspiracy, and the journey of an unknown people to a brave new world. I hope that everyone is doing all right out there, you're all making it through the the winter, we've got a a storm coming in New England as I'm recording this, although I think it's going to hit uh, a little further south from where I am, Uh, but I'm ready for winter to be over already, it's just too damn cold right now, Uh, but I apologize uh, for the delay in getting this episode out, I've been trying to keep with the bi-weekly release schedule as much as possible and typically thursdays are when i'm aiming to uh, drop new episodes but a bunch of things came up this past week that took priority over getting this episode uh, out and researched in time and put together so i could record it uh, but i'm finally doing it right now and we're ready to rock and <laughs> i swear the the next research episode I do needs to be a little bit less complex than this one because this episode is a bit of a roller coaster and uh, I totally embodied the energy of Charlie from It's Always Sunny, you know, the meme with uh, the conspiracy mapping episode and he's just like going nuts, like (laughs) connecting all these different things with with all the strings on the wall. Uh, And there's so many moving parts and pieces to this episode. Uh, But I think that there's a connection in here somewhere to be made. And I think you're going to enjoy going down this rabbit hole with me. And I'm just going to keep this intro short and sweet. uh, Not really talk about any other updates uh, aside from checking out the shop. Uh, I recently added a few new home state cryptid designs as well as a uh, a new design in that style that I'm calling Homeland cryptids for international cryptids. So I I just finally, after two years of doing this, got around to making a design for uh, Nessie, the Loch Ness monster. So definitely check that out. Uh, And I've got some fun uh, Valentine's Day uh, themed Uh, designs in the shop right now if you're looking to buy uh, something for uh, a loved one and you'd like to support Strangeology. But uh, anyway, that's about all I'm going to talk about there because we've got a lot to talk about today on this episode. So I'm going to start this off with The biblical quote, which many people often refer to about this topic, it comes from Genesis 6-4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Yep. Uh, Today we're talking about the legends and myths of ancient giants in North America that some believe once ruled over this continent and had a long lineage dating back eons across other parts of the world. And perhaps you've run across these theories about ancient giant humans before in America and and elsewhere. Uh, You're probably familiar with biblical stories like David and Goliath or the tales of Paul Bunyan and Jack and the Beanstalk, and these legends of gigantic human creatures that can be found all throughout history. If you look back at old legends and even old newspaper clippings, you can find hundreds of articles talking about these enormous skeletons being found, which were especially prevalent in the 19th century. And then it seems once these old bones were talked about and written about, they'd get shipped off to the Smithsonian to be studied, and then they'd never be heard from again. There would be this mysterious disappearance by institutional powers, and a lot of people believe that there's some kind of cover-up or conspiracy going on here. So did these colossal creatures actually... Exist and coexist with ancient humans? And were they they worshipped worshipped by by our our ancient ancestors? Or were they all just myths, just stories that people were making up? So strap in, folks. This is going to get wild. If you're into historical mysteries and conspiracies, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Uh, For me, this has always been a really interesting topic. So I'm excited to let you all know what it's all about. So let's get into it. Now, several Native American First Nations and Mesoamerican peoples, such as the Choctaw, the Comanche, the Navajo, the Paiute, the Manta of Peru, all have uncannily similar legends of these white giants with blonde or red hair that ruled over the land and enslaved the people that lived there sometime in the very distant past. And one of the more well-known names that people referred to these giants as are the Tall Ones. But these tribes all had their own names for these giants, such as the Starnaki from the Navajo, the Choctaw called them the Nahulo, and the Aztec called them the Quenemetzin. And there's also legends of deities that the Aztecs have, like Quetzalcoatl or Khan from the Mayans or Viracocha from the Incans. And these gods were typically called the feathered serpent creator gods, but were also curiously described as being white skinned and typically having this kind of graying beard and these features weren't typical of mesoamerican populations it was kind of kind of an enigma Uh, and these giants were said to be powerful and wealthy with art and culture and technological knowledge of building fortified cities they had the technology to mine ore from the earth And create weapons of war. And in most cases, these mystery people, whoever they were, would be eventually overthrown or driven out or exterminated by the indigenous peoples of the area. Now, during my research, I checked out this book, uh, Ancient Giants Who Ruled America by Richard J. Dewhurst, who has written extensively on this topic, and he has a lot of interesting things to say. So I've taken some notes from from his book, among other sources, but uh, one of the key tenets that Dewhurst asserts early on is that he thinks that the theory of evolution is is backwards, uh, which is kind of an interesting thought. Uh, His idea is that we didn't evolve from small primates, but... Instead, we descended from literal giants. And this idea stems from his view that birds were once big dinosaurs and then became smaller over time, so naturally other living creatures on Earth must have gone through a similar process. And yes, there's you know, fossil record evidence and geologic evidence that creatures used to be a lot larger millions and millions of years ago for instance insects used to be huge like scarily huge horror movie huge (laughs) and this was because there was a much higher concentration of oxygen in the atmosphere back then Um, but the earth is a very different place now it's gone through so many different changes and climates Uh, you know ice ball earth at times uh, you know geologic and volcanic upheavals Um, and in that whole epoch of time is longer than the, the sliver of time that humans have been around on earth. Um, it's an interesting thought. I don't really think that's correct, but, um, it's kind of something to preface this whole idea, uh, that there were once giants that walked among us and throughout his book. Uh, Perhaps the more important and interesting information is that he highlights dozens of old stories and journals and newspaper clippings about the remains of giants being found all over North America. So who were these giants and how big were they exactly? According to all these old articles about giant skeletons being dug up around North America the range of them seems to be anywhere from 7 feet to 9 feet tall, with some claims of even taller skeletons being found. And curiously, a number of them were apparently reported to have elongated skulls, in which a certain number of them were unlikely to be the result of cranial deformation from headboarding techniques or something like hydrocephaly. More interesting still is the observation of red hair being on their heads, if there's any left on the skulls to begin with, which, depending on composition and how it was buried, there just might be. And red hair was not typical to native populations in North America, which is an important piece of this puzzle. And I do wonder, though, if these people had naturally red hair while they were alive or if the pigments changed after death, which, as it turns out, is actually a thing. Uh, I looked it up and it turns out that people with high concentrations of eumelanin in their hair will typically have black and brown hair, whereas people who have red hair have higher concentrations of something called pheomelanin, which of course is much more rare and why there are a smaller number of redheads out in the world. However, it's interesting to note that after someone dies, the less stable eumelanin actually breaks down much quicker than pheomelanin, which is a much more stable compound, which causes the remains of a body's hair to actually turn red during the process of decay. And that was a bit of a tangent, but it's, it's interesting to learn about that while researching this episode. So, you know, something to keep in mind w- when there's claims of red hair on ancient skeletons and, and giant skeletons that are, that are dug up, there could be uh, an, a perfectly explainable natural process as to why The hair is red. But again, there's also the possibility that they were red haired while they were alive. Um, So, you know, if anyone is like, oh, red headed mummies, they're aliens or whatever, (laughs) you know, just keep that little factoid in mind that there's a reasonable explanation for it. Now, let's take a look at the modern human. So, the average range of height for people who live in America today. Is between five foot four inches and five foot ten inches. And obviously, there's, you know, taller and shorter along that bell curve, but those are the averages for people today. With the lower end of that bell curve being people who have dwarfism, to the higher end of that bell curve being people who have gigantism, like former basketball players Shaq or Yao Ming or Andre the Giant who are and were both over seven feet tall. Some people that have had gigantism have even grown as tall as just under nine feet which is absolutely massive. Just think about the typical height of the ceilings in your home and how tall your door frames are or even how big cars are today. People of massive stature like that wouldn't even be able to stand up straight in your typical home or be able to fit in the the modern-day car. Now, gigantism is a rare condition that affects one in a million individuals, and it's usually caused by a pituitary tumor or acromegaly. And typically, the tallest of them don't live for very long due to the extreme stresses on their heart, their cardiovascular system as a whole, their skeletal system, just due to their sheer size. It puts so much stress on it that they just don't don't live as long as a regular person. Now, the tallest person that we have on record was a man named Robert Wadlow, who was born in America And he lived from 1918 until 1940, so he died at a very young age of 22 years old. And he grew to a colossal height of 8 foot 11 inches and weighed in at almost 500 pounds while he was alive. The second and third tallest people that we have on record, also born in America, were John Rogan and John Carroll. Rogan was eight foot nine and Carol was eight foot seven. And Rogan, who was born in 1905, died at age 37. Carol died in 1969, also at age 37. So, again, that's a a very young age to die in your late 30s. So, the current tallest person that we know of alive today is a man from Turkey named Sultan Qasin, who was born in 1982 and is about eight foot three. And Qasin's condition has affected him in such a way that he needs crutches in order to walk. So there is a precedent for humans being able to reach such great stature, uh, but there's a lot of, downsides to being that tall obviously you don't have as great of a life expectancy and there's a lot of factors that come into play that cause your quality of life to not be so great so with that said did people actually exist that were giant and lived healthy and normal lives that also possessed this rich culture and technology some sometime in the distant past that legends and old oral traditions claim to talk about. Well, the first place that you can look to see if there is even evidence in the modern era is in old journals and newspapers from the 1800s. And as it turns out, there are tons of stories and references to hundreds of these massive humanoid skeletons and humanoid bones that can be found in all these old journals and papers and articles from back then it's really really interesting but obviously when you look at this you have to realize that during this era there was a lot of yellow journalism at the time which is basically people uh, a lot of people making things up to either drive tourism to certain towns or to keep their publication, their business open by selling these wild and outlandish stories. So you got to take things with a grain of salt, but it is interesting to look into these stories and read about this potential evidence. In his book, Dewhurst includes many articles and stories of sites written about these ancient archeological finds built by people that we call the mound builders who built thousands of these earthworks and mounds. And little is known about these people other than they were around and and constructing these thousands of mounds, millennia before many of the Native American tribes that we know were established. And I want to point out here that The mound builders are considered to be Native American from what we know, but earlier peoples who inhabited North America, and perhaps they became these other tribes eventually. But there were a lot of racist sentiments and and thoughts back in the 17 and 1800s when these sites were first discovered that asserted that Native Americans couldn't possibly have built these sites they just weren't intelligent enough and obviously that's far from the case and our understanding has increased immensely since then but there is this historical uh, precedent of of this uh, way of thinking which is just wrong so there's all these examples that i want to take a few minutes to highlight from duhurst's book that have all these old reports talking about these mound sites and giant skeletons being unearthed from them, which is what we really want to get into here. Uh, and obviously, we don't know if these are hoaxes or which ones are, are legit, but it's, it's worth a look. So the first article that I want to go over is this article from 1824 called A History of Livingston County, New York that discusses hundreds of different artifacts and remains that were found years earlier in 1811. I know we're jumping around in time a bit, but bear with me. So all of these artifacts and and bones were found at this site called Mount Morris, which is a mound builder site, and it's this structure that's 8 to 10 feet tall and 100 feet in diameter. And among the artifacts found there were arrowheads, metals, uh, a tobacco pipe, among other trinkets. But perhaps the most intriguing is the mention of, in this report of the remains of human skeletons of enormous size standing out amongst the other remains found there. And according to the story, the skull of the individual that was found, this, this giant skeleton, was so big that one of the people digging up the site, a man named Adam Halslander, picked up the jawbone and placed it over his face. And it was apparently so large that it almost covered his face kind of like a mask. And it was also reported that the rest of the skeleton that this jawbone belonged to was in proportion to the whole thing. So whoever this individual allegedly was was massive and one of the absurdly larger skeletons alleged to have been discovered in this era was written about in the ohio democrat publication from 1870 which spoke of a skeleton found with a nine foot long sword and a gigantic metal helmet and the article speculated that this giant person must have been at least 18 feet tall, but I'm not sure if I buy that one. 18 feet seems a little ridiculous, but who knows? And then in 1895, there's this story that the Smithsonian purchased an 8 foot, 4 inch tall mummy for $500, or in today's money, it would be over $14,000 which was apparently discovered near San Diego, California, and has since become known as the San Diego Giant. And originally this mummy was inspected, but years later in 1908, while this mummy was on exhibit, the Smithsonian decided to run some new tests on it. And once the results were in, the Smithsonian suddenly dismissed the San Diego Giant as a fake, which was apparently this uh, this fake <laughs> mummy <laughs> that was made out of gelatin, I guess. Uh, so it's, it's largely considered to have been a hoax, but it is interesting to note there was this man named Al's Herdlishka who joined up with the Smithsonian in 1903 who was very much against the idea of ancient giants once roaming the world and apparently made a concentrated effort to stifle and silence any discoveries and claims of their existence overall the accepted idea is that this wasn't a real eight foot tall mummy but people do raise an eyebrow at why the smithsonian would have spent so much money on a fake mummy and to be fooled for thirteen years before realizing that this mummy wasn't legit. But it's a curious story for sure. The next report we have comes from Raynersville, Ohio, in 1898, where an eight foot seven tall skeleton was allegedly discovered, which was buried with stone tools and hatchets, which Dewhurst points out as being a kind of signature characteristic of the mound builder culture so potentially if that's a legitimate story there's a connection to be made there and then in 1899 the Portsmouth Herald reported on an ancient skeleton being unearthed in Noble County that was up to nine feet tall in 1907 in Rockingham Vermont there was a report that there was this extremely large humanoid skeleton that was found believed to be Native American and again the jawbone was said to be so large that it could be used almost like a mask and curiously this report talked about the the jawbone having a double set of teeth which it, as it turns out is reported in several other stories of giants along ...with having an extra digit on their hands and feet. The skeleton was apparently housed in the attic of a building... ...that had a doctor's office and drugstore in it... Uh, ...but the building was apparently renovated in the late 1800s... ...and it seemed that when this happened, the skeleton mysteriously vanished... In 1931, there's a report from the San Antonio Express, uh, which reported that an archaeological team dug up a 12 foot tall skeleton where its skull was twice the size of a modern day human's. And Alice Herdlischke was quoted as saying the finds in Texas were beginning to give weight to the theory that humans lived in North America up to 45,000 years ago. Now, this story actually has a newspaper article with a picture included in it, so I'll throw that in the show notes so you can see what this looks like and kind of how these old articles displayed their information and all that. It's it's pretty interesting. Uh, and if it's real, it's a pretty damn big skull compared to the two other regular skulls in the images. Granted, it's uh, a 90-year-old scanned newsprint, so the quality isn't that great, but definitely take a look. It's pretty interesting. And then there's another report in 1953 from the Charles Roy Mail that talked about a Native American burial site being discovered along the Susquehanna River and close to fifty skeletons were found there, and among them was an eight-foot-tall individual. And the bones were apparently shipped off to the Harrisburg Museum and then to the Smithsonian, but the Smithsonian apparently has no record of these remains ever being sent to or housed at any of their facilities. So <laughs> that that stuff like that always leads to more people questioning whether or not there's some kind of cover-up happening. And then in 1959, there is a story from Dr. Donald Dragoo of the Carnegie Museum, who was said to have discovered a 7-foot, 2-inch tall skeleton at the Cresap Mound in West Virginia. So these sites and these skeletons were apparently, if it's all real were found in every corner of the country, pretty much. If you've listened to my episode on the lost city of the Grand Canyon, you might remember me talking about Lovelock Cave. And this is another location that supposedly harbored giant remains, as the legend of the Paiute talked about a race of red-haired cannibal giants called the Sitaka. And according to their folklore... The Paiutes were constantly attacked and eaten for years by these man-eating giants, and eventually they wound up fighting back against them and killed most of them off, and according to the legend, the final survivors of this giant race were trapped inside the Lovelock Cave, and the Paiute people lit a massive bonfire at the mouth of the cave, and it spread inside, and with... Nowhere to go, the giants were apparently burnt alive, and that was the end of them. And allegedly, there have been anomalous skeletal findings inside of Lovelock Cave, but I'll go over that in a little bit. Perhaps one of the more well known mound structures is the Great Serpent Mound in Peebles, Ohio. And This structure, it's not really a mound. It's this 1,400-foot-long depiction of a snake, or some people speculate that it might represent a comet or something like that. Uh, And this site, based on radiocarbon dating, is thought to have been constructed around 321 BCE, possibly by the Adena people, which were one of the mound builder cultures. And in the 1890s, a professor named Frederick Ward Putnam was working on excavating this site and allegedly found several large human skeleton remains. Most of these were in the six-foot range, but recently a researcher on the Serpent Mound was looking through old photos of the dig operation and came across this postcard that appeared to show a skeleton that was Even larger than that, and appeared to be within the seven to eight foot range. So that's just another example of a giant skeleton that may have been found. And I could go on. Uh, There's literally hundreds of old articles and so many are similar talking about these seven to nine foot tall or taller skeletons being found around ancient burial sites or near mounds and earthworks created by the mound builders, all over the eastern parts of the United States and even as far out as California. They show up in Georgia, Arizona, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Vermont, (laughs) and on and on. It seems like if any of this is legit, that you could find these skeletons in in every corner of North America, which suggests that there could have been a race of giant people who lived here eons ago. But if you want to study these bones to see if they're real, the typical end to the story is that usually these bones get shipped off to the Smithsonian and they're never seen again because uh, the idea is that there's some kind of cover-up or conspiracy. But I do have to wonder how many of these stories were authentic versus how many were people just trying to make a quick buck with a fantastic story and how many were copycats just trying to get their claim to fame as well. And that's why with some of this old journalism, or really a lot, uh, you should be taking a skeptical approach to to this kind of stuff, but, you know, also keep an open mind as well. Because most of these reports are so old that it's probably next to impossible to corroborate and verify the authenticity of all of them, but perhaps there is some truth to these old stories. And as far as the idea of a Smithsonian cover-up, Dewhurst has some things to say about this in his book. After the Civil War in the United States, the Smithsonian adopted a policy from John Wesley Powell, who you might remember from my Grand Canyon episode, uh, and this policy resulted in the exclusion of evidence of direct foreign influence from pre-Columbian America partially due to wanting to downplay regional and ethnic conflicts as the country was in a fragile state in the Reconstruction era after the Civil War but also to legitimize the whole manifest destiny westward expansion of the United States in the latter half of the 1800s and with this, you know, came along the displacement and annihilation of Native American tribes that lived there for thousands of years. And Dewhurst highlights that a lot of Powell's policies and thoughts at the time were incredibly racist. Uh, And there was this whole idea of racial superiority with manifest destiny and that, uh, you know, quote, savages were unintelligent, their writings and cave paintings were merely crude drawings with no real meaning. And this philosophy, it seems, became doctrine after Powell's death in 1902 and remained that way for much of the 20th century. So it would seem that finds by Smithsonian backed researchers and archaeologists may have had a motive of some sort to potentially cover up findings that went against their historical narrative of North America. But if you ask anyone today, they'll pretty much just say, oh, we don't have giant skeletons or these stories were fabricated or never happened, of course. And there's this article floating around on several blogs with the title, Smithsonian Admits to Destruction of Thousands of Giant Human Skeletons in the Early 1900s. That's floating out there in several different (laughs) blogs. And, uh, you know, it claims that... uh, the U.S. Supreme Court had this ruling that forced the Smithsonian to release classified documents revealing this old cover-up, but I looked into it, and that story is 100% bunk. There's there's no case number or record of this courtroom proceeding, so if you do run across that story, it's totally fake news. But, you know, in, in the end, is it possible there was a cover-up? Maybe, maybe, with you know, old old uh, racist thoughts and people not wanting to believe that Native Americans were capable of stuff like this. It's, it's possible that things were covered up, but, you know, we don't know exactly. Okay, so with all these old reports, it seems like, and let's just entertain the idea that maybe there were actually giants roaming around in the ancient past. So who were these giants a good place to start looking is actually with the mound builders of north america since it seems like according to old legends and their apparent proximity to giant skeletons that they they seem connected somehow from what we understand today the mound builders were a widespread ...group of different Paleo-Indian peoples throughout history... ...whose signature was building these thousands of large mounds out of dirt. And these sites functioned as tombs and ceremonial sites from what we know. And some of these sites are astronomically aligned. And these things are everywhere, from the Great Lakes region down to the Gulf of Mexico and from the Atlantic coast to the Mississippi River Valley. And the oldest of these sites are believed to be older than the pyramids of Egypt. Uh, And and these oldest sites are found in Louisiana, which date back to at least 3500 BCE. So they're well over 5,000 years old. And this mound building practice continued through several different cultures, up until the 16th century CE. So when settlers started moving further inland in America, people began to wonder who built these massive structures. And by the 1800s, stories of these sites being constructed by giants started to circulate widely. Abraham Lincoln uh, apparently once referenced in his writings, uh giants. And it was in this piece about Niagara Falls and the giants that once inhabited the lands of North America. And the quote goes like The eyes of the species of extinct giants, whose bones fill the mounds of America, have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Although in this writing he also goes on to mention mammoths and mastodons, so I have to wonder if that quote was in reference to the megafauna that used to live in North America versus giant humans, although maybe you could classify ancient giant humans as megafauna, uh, but I, dig- I digress. <laughs> One of the most known ancient earthwork sites is the Great Serpent Mound, found in Ohio, and what's cool about this site is that beyond being more of an intricate structure than just a mound was that it was astronomically aligned to the sunset on the summer solstice. So whoever built this was paying attention to the stars and had some knowledge of astronomy. And we see this in a lot of different ancient megalithic builder cultures all over the world. And in most cases, this was either for ceremonial purposes Uh, or observation and and keeping track of the seasons for planting crops and and that kind of thing. And there's another site as well that is kind of aligned with the Pleiades star system, which is interesting because there's also like uh, the Great Pyramid and the whole Giza complex, which is aligned to the constellation of Orion. So ancient people were very into astronomy and the stars and, and what was going on up there. It's really, really quite interesting. Now, like I mentioned previously, the mound builders weren't actually one monolithic culture, but rather a series of different cultures spanning thousands of years. One of the earliest of these people were the Adena, who I mentioned previously, And they showed up around 800 BCE in the Ohio River Valley near West Virginia. And after them, the more dominant mound builder culture were the Hopewell, and they spread their influence even farther out and established this vast trade network uh, as far up as the copper mines in Isle Royale up in Lake Superior in Michigan, which, sidebar, is a topic for another episode because there's some wild theories about pre-Columbian trade with these people and the Egyptians and <laughs> it's wild but anyway uh, the last mound builder culture thrived from uh, the year 800 to 1500 which was the Mississippian culture and to our knowledge they were the only mound builders who ever potentially met Europeans as this was just after um, Transoceanic contact happened um, within the last, you know, five hundred years. Discounting the Vikings, who you know they made it to North America in a thousand A.D. thereabouts, and messed around for a while. Who knows? Maybe they they made it further inland. Uh, but the Mississippian culture was largely an agrarian society from what we know they farmed and raised livestock and they also built the city of cahokia in what is now illinois east of st louis and cahokia as it turns out was the largest city in north america in pre-columbian times and during its heyday It's believed that it actually rivaled the size of London at the time, and some think that it may have actually briefly exceeded the population of London as well, which is wild. Uh, Now, this city was said to be home to more than 120 pyramidal structures, uh, one of which is Monk's Mound, which is the largest of the North American mounds, and this mound was built between 900 and 1200 CE with different layers and pieces being added to it over a 300-year period. And for perspective, uh, it's around 100 feet tall, and the base of this structure is almost equivalent to the base of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. And its perimeter is longer than the Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan, In Mexico. So in other words, this thing is huge (laughs) and it's not something that you learn about in school growing up. So, yeah, Um, it's, you know, certainly not as intricate and impressive as, say, the Great Pyramid or the Pyramid of the Sun. Um, And it isn't really a pyramid per se, uh, but it's it's wild to think about. The amount of time and manpower it would have taken to move all that dirt to create this site, and the culture that inhabited Cahokia, wound up disappearing around the 1400s. Um, so, this culture was on the decline already by the time Europeans arrived, and it was the city of Cahokia was actually. Abandoned and mostly reclaimed by nature by the time, uh, colonials made it that far inland to see what was going on. So were all these mounds built by regular human beings like you and I? Probably, uh, but you got to wonder: is is it possible there was some kind of connection to these legends of giants being involved somehow? and especially with reports of these massive skeletons that were allegedly found. According to Dewhurst, it seems that when Europeans first began arriving and permanently settling in North America, the native tribes in the areas where mounds exist didn't have knowledge of who built them other than they were already there when they arrived. European colonists assumed that there was no way that the uncivilized native peoples could build anything that sophisticated, which, you know, as we've, we've mentioned before, that's super racist uh, and a really not great assumption. Uh, and this led to theories about a lost civilization that built them, uh, anything from the lost 10 tribes of Israel to Atlantean refugees. Uh, but the most likely explanation is that these were, you know, built by the, the ancestors of the indigenous people living there and that the knowledge and oral traditions of these sites were probably lost and forgotten over time and it wouldn't be the first time in human history that something like that has happened uh, think of uh, Roman concrete or Greek fire uh, knowledge of that was lost or the Baghdad battery and the technology to electroplate things And to build on that, Dewhurst pointed out one theory in his book that perhaps the mound builders migrated to Central America after their decline and became the Mayans and Aztec people who advanced their building techniques to include masonry. But we'll discuss that later (laughs) and how that theory might be the other way around. But what about... Giants. It's said that many of these sites contained these extraordinarily large skeletons that were more often than not associated with or uh, part of ancient earthwork sites and mounds that dot the landscape of the eastern side of the U.S. and beyond. Uh, So, you know, there's this idea that perhaps at least some of the people in this mound builder culture could have been giants. Or perhaps it was someone else entirely. This is a big episode today, but we're going to take a quick break for listeners new and old. If you like what you hear and you'd like to support the Strangeology podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash Strangeology. I offer a wide variety of benefits and perks, starting at some affordable monthly rates. Some of the perks include a merch discount to my Etsy shop, VIP Discord access, early access to content, access to the members-only Strangeology Beyond segments, exclusive members-only merch, and more. And now, a quick shout-out to my growing group of patrons who help keep the lights on at Strangeology. We've got Alex Dorgan, Alyssa, Mystic Novelty Company, Appalachian Huntsman, Metazoo Games, Greg Morrill from All the Weird, Sean Cologne, Miranda Jarnot, John Hickenbottom, Marine Azmat, Gail Frederick, William Malcamies, Adam Flynn, Connor Boyle, Ryan Holiday, Cassie Muratzen, and Anne Lutrzyckowski Ford. So again, if you're looking for a way to support the show, head on over to patreon.com/strangeology. You might find something you like. And now, let's get back to the show. And we're back. So I wanted to mention another enigmatic mound site that came up during my research. And that's it's this place that was excavated during the building of this dam back in the 1930s. And there are a lot of assertions and embellishments and and lies about this story that people have kind of made up and, and ran with over the years. But I wanted to include this anyway because... It's pretty interesting, and uh, there might be some kind of connection to the larger story at play here. So, this mound site was located near the Clinch River, uh, some nine miles west of Clinton, Tennessee. And in 1933, the Tennessee Valley Authority had plans to build the uh, area's first hydroelectric dam. And... As part of this project, they went out to survey different Native American sites that were in the area to excavate and preserve any artifacts uh, before the whole area was inundated underwater after the dam was completed. So, all of the excavations were completed by 1934 under the supervision of this archaeologist, uh, William S. Webb, who was the chairman of the University of Kentucky's Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at the time. And after all was said and done, 20 earth mounds and 9 stone mounds and several village areas were, were dug up in this area, and any items that were found were preserved. And there were... Prehistoric structures found, old wooden structures that were more recent, there were human remains, pottery, uh, different artifacts, and and everything that was found was reported in the Smithsonian's uh, Ethnology Bulletin, uh, number 118, that was written by William S. Webb. Now, there was one mound in particular out of this collection of mounds called the Irvin Mound. And this This one was kind of interesting because it had a row of these like 10 standing stones that were between two and four feet tall uh, next to the remains of a rectangular building structure that was made out of these cedar posts. And when the team of student archaeologists that were there digging, um, they dug up this wooden structure uh, and then they found another line of small standing stones in there. And they they wound up finding like this copper coin from 1797, a button and some beads. So this layer was fairly recent. Um, So nothing too extraordinary, just kind of an interesting structure to it all. Um, But the team dug deeper and found that the first unearthed building was actually built on top of an older structure. and then they kept digging and then they found another structure under that. (laughs) Um, so it was kind of interesting. This, this different layered, uh, history of this particular site. Like how old was it and how deep did it go? Uh, and photographs were, were taken of this site and some, uh, wound up getting published in newspapers like the New York times. So after these excavations happened, this, uh, Respected British manuscript curator was reading the New York Times one day, and there's this article about this excavated mound site in Tennessee, uh, the Irvin Mound. So, this curator was a man named J. Rendell Harris, and he was elderly at the time. Uh, He was 82 years old, but apparently, he was so moved by what he saw in the photograph of this particular mound site uh, that was published um, and he wound up writing this article called a temple in Tennessee the following year and Harris had dedicated his life to studying Egyptology and archaeology in general and became convinced that ancient Egyptians had visited America in the in the distant past uh, by way of the Bahamas and into the Gulf of Mexico and then up through Mississippi River Valley. And he also speculated that the ancient Egyptians may have had a connection with the ancient copper miners up in Michigan, uh, and that because of this trade route, they likely established an outpost, and his thought that it was probably somewhere in eastern Tennessee. So Harris had this prior theory and, and bias uh, and once he he saw this image of this mound excavation site, it was all the evidence he needed, apparently, to back up his theory. So this photo, I'll link it in the show notes. Um, it was taken by Webb's team, and it showed this series of standing stones that I described earlier uh, forming this line at the next to this rectangular platform, which had been buried for who knows how many years. It was believed that the mound that was on top of this structure was made somewhere between the Hopewell and Mississippian era of the mound builders. And it turned out that none of the artifacts found there seemed to be anything other than Native American. But Harris noted that one of the standing stones on the platform, uh, there there were these two large ones next to each other and to him, It seemed like they resembled pylons, which was a common architectural feature in ancient Egyptian temples. And it was a strange feature, for sure, but according to the report from Webb, uh, many of the objects that appear to be standing stones actually turned out to be cedar posts, not stones. So it's unlikely there was really an ancient Egyptian connection there, uh, but there may be some transoceanic contacts that are part of this larger uh, story involving giants. Um, and as far as giants go, this site was kind of a dead end for that. Um, it turned out that uh, any of the the skeletons and human remains that were found at this Irvin Mound were only between five foot six and five foot ten, and William Webb wrote extensively on mound sites in in this whole area of the country, and he did write about a seven-foot-tall skeleton that was found at a different mound site in Kentucky called the Dover Mound. So it seems like if there was anything out of the ordinary at the Irvin Mound, he probably would have said something. So... We're still no closer to identifying just who these giants were, but there are some clues. Another interesting factoid from Dewhurst's book is that many of the reports mentioned that these giant skeletons in North America appeared to have very strangely shaped heads, often described as cone heads, uh, you know, kind of like the old SNL skit with Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin, but (laughs) not really. Uh, Basically, these skulls were large and drastically different than an anatomically modern human and ethnically different from the Native American peoples in general. And these skulls, it seemed, had features more akin to that of a great ape. So that's something different and interesting. Uh, Their skull shape was said to be of the, quote, otamid ...or of a primitive type, which consisted of a a sloped forehead, a pronounced brow, a high nasal bridge, a powerful jaw, teeth more designed to be carnivorous, robust bones, and the presence of an interparietal bone, or what's otherwise known as an Inca bone, at the back of the skull. And that name was derived from being found on Peruvian mummies... Which is also interesting that these features can be found in South American skulls and skeletons as well, which suggests that perhaps these people were a lot more widespread than just North America. And a lot of the strangely shaped skulls in these parts of the world can be attributed to the process of head binding, which was usually started in infancy to mold the skull into a more cone-like and elongated shape since when we're born our skulls are still soft and in the process of, of fusing together. But interestingly, that doesn't explain all of these weird skulls. The more enigmatic of them out there have features that can't be the result of head binding. When you look into it, and they have to be genetic. Uh, For example, feel your head behind your ears. You'll feel or should feel this kind of like descending and curving shape around your skull where your neck meets your head behind the ear. That's called the mastoid process. It's a bone protrusion where your jaw muscles anchor to. And It's not all that large on Homo sapiens, but on some of these elongated skulls, the mastoid process is huge, which suggests this very powerful set of jaw muscles, and and that's not something that head binding has any effect on. Another feature of these skulls that is different than ours is their foramen magnum, which is the opening in the bottom of the occipital bone where the spine enters the skull. Now, in humans, this is usually near the center of your skull, uh, for you know, balancing your head on on your neck and your body. Uh, but on these elongated skulls, the form and magnum is actually set towards the back of the skull, which is a feature that's more commonly found. In great ape species, like gorillas, for example, and it's thought that this feature was to accommodate for the larger size uh, and weight of the skull. The paracas skulls of Peru, for example, have been found to be about twenty-five percent larger and sixty percent heavier, and have a thirty to forty-five percent higher brain capacity than a modern human skull. And if you haven't seen the Paracas skulls, just look up Brian Forrester and, and just look at pictures of, of these skulls. They're crazy weird. And one more comparison between a human skull and these elongated skulls is that the elongated skulls have no sagittal suture line and there's no way that head binding would cause that from our understanding. Uh, perhaps this was all just a, a genetic mutation or some kind of hybridization between a previously unknown archaic human species and modern man. Like, who, who were these people? <laughs> and what if the skulls that are human and are a result of, of head binding were trying to? emulate these cone headed people just a question right (laughs) and speaking of archaic humans there's this really interesting theory that involves one of the more recently discovered and little understood human cousin that once walked the earth with us and that they might be the key to solving this mystery I'm talking about the Denisovans and their potential connection with all of this. Well, to get to the bottom of this, tune in next week for part two. <laughs> I, I hate to leave you all with a, a cliffhanger here. I originally I was going to have this be one super big episode but it just got too much for one pass so you'll definitely not want to miss the next part because there's some really interesting revelations to come and you know it's this complex web of everything and i just wanted to do this justice and make sure that it all kind of makes sense so (laughs) you had your first serving and the uh the seconds are coming next week anyway I hope that you found this series of, uh, of stories and theories uh, as fascinating as, as I do. Uh, there was so much information to sift through and so many different parts to look into and see if I could tie it all together. So I hope I, hope I did it justice. It's, uh, it's also a subject that I really only had a, a surface level knowledge of beforehand. Uh, so it was super interesting to look into all of this and look at all these theories and make some connections about what could have happened in the mysterious past of, of humanity. Uh, But anyway, as always, uh, I have to give a big thank you to all of you for, for checking out today's episode and for listening to the strangeology podcast, uh, for sharing it and and liking it and supporting and, and loving what I do here. It, It really means the world to me and i i already announced this on social media but the show recently passed the 10,000 download mark which is a huge milestone and you are all so awesome and it still blows my mind uh, that people from all corners of the world have downloaded this show i think it's over like 50 countries now which is crazy (laughs) so thank you so much and if you haven't checked out my shop recently uh, definitely head on over there. It's at strangeology.etsy.com. Uh, I've got all the, the links in, uh, on my website and also uh, on Linktree. I recently added a few new items, and I'm going to be running a, uh, a sale for uh, Valentine's Day by the time this episode drops. And if you're looking to buy some fun cryptid-themed Uh, gifts for your loved ones or your friends. Uh, It helps support Strangeology, which is awesome and always appreciated. Also, a quick reminder to definitely check me out and give me a follow on all the different social media sites. Uh, I I spend most of my time on Instagram. You can find me there at strange.ology but you can also follow me on Twitter at Strangeologist, Facebook at Strangeology, and TikTok at Strangeology as well. Uh, And it gets pretty wild there from time to time uh, with how much people interact, so we have fun there. (laughs) And you can find my blog over at Strangeology.com, where you can also sign up for my mailing list, And definitely check that out. I'm also always looking for people to contribute to the blog. So if you like to write about cryptids or the paranormal, anything Fortian, uh, just drop me a line in my contact box. Uh, Or you can also drop me a line and and feel feel free to shoot me an email with comments and suggestions. Um, My email is strangeologist at gmail.com. Uh, you can also DM me on Instagram. I try to respond to everyone and, and you know, just uh, keep it open. And on final note, uh, Strangeology also has a voicemail for people who want to call in with their stories of encounters with the strange and unexplained. The number there is 802-448-0612. That's 802 448 0612. And there's a time limit to the voicemail, so if you do run out of time, it's like two to three minutes or something, uh, you can call back and pick up where you left off. Or if you prefer to share your story via email, that works too. Uh, the goal is to eventually do a new uh, stories episode of, of listener and uh, follower submissions. So I'd love to hear your stories. And That about wraps things up for my patrons. Stick around after the short break for some more stories about giants. And for everyone else, take care of yourselves and each other. And as always, keep it strange. Welcome back, patrons, to the Strangeology Beyond portion of the show that is exclusive to you. Uh, I hope you really dug the the main part of the episode today, uh, and again... <laughs>